Welcome, welcome, welcome to episode two of Flicking and Screaming. I'm Jed Sprague here with my co-host Evan Fagundis. Hello, everybody. And this week, we pulled out our hoodies and our fuck you flip-flops because that's right. We're covering one Mr. David Fincher. We're going Evan. dark. <laughs> but first of all, Evan, how are we? I, I'm doing really well again. Um, I've been really looking forward to talking about David Fincher with you and and kind of hopefully introducing Fincher to some people who didn't know him. Um, but I'm just I'm just really excited. How are you doing? You know, I'm doing great. I could not believe all the you know support of people that listened to the podcast last week. Um, you know, we had zero idea whether or not it would be even you know anybody outside of our parents that would listen. Uh, and want to hear us talk about movies. Uh, and so really the outpouring of support and, and uh, feedback was uh, mind boggling. And we cannot thank yeah. you guys enough. Cannot thank you enough um, for listening. And, you know, please talk to us. Join the conversation. We want to know what you want to hear on this thing. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I couldn't have said it better myself. And, um, you know, surprised and really excited that people are into the conversation. And, and we definitely want to hear from more people um and and hear what you guys are watching and what you think so um you know hopefully we can keep it rolling for you but uh, we're we're really excited to get into the kind of meat of the podcast that uh that we're looking to make exactly well i mean that was a nice segue um why don't you tell me what did you get a chance to watch this week since we last had a conversation that is a great question um and we do want to talk a little bit every week about what we're watching to uh you know lend some credibility to ourselves to make sure everyone does know that we do watch movies um we don't just talk about them uh but this week i definitely watched a lot of fincher uh i love david fincher so i watched the social network and zodiac and fight club mm -hmm. uh you know the ones that i had mentioned i i wanted to do the homework with you guys um then i also watched girl with a dragon tattoo and then outside of David Fincher, I watched Ocean's Eleven uh, because that was number one for you. And I hadn't seen it for a while. So I needed to revisit. How was it? And then, How was it? To talk to oh, me about it. It's incredible. I, I, you know, the conversation that we had last week about it, that movie, it's superstars. And I know I mentioned Brad Pitt eats a lot of food, but I got to say it again. The dude is eating food in every scene that he's in. It's wild. It's wild. He must have gained 15 pounds just based on the food that he's eating in scenes. Yeah, well, I think Brad Pitt doesn't gain weight no matter what he eats. That's but fair. he had to have been very full, or they were just nailing takes left and right. But I can see he had to be full. I can see on a set like that though, they didn't do a lot of takes. They were just kind of feeling the vibe, you know, running back and forth, you know, keeping it pretty natural. Yeah, right? and all the pranking uh, behind the scenes might have might have kept everybody limber. Might have kept them moving around. Yes, um, doing most of the eating in front of the camera, not behind. But we'll, um, we'll touch on that in the Ocean's Eleven pod that we yes, will definitely do. We will definitely do that. Uh, and then last but not least, I watched the Charlie and the Chocolate Factory with Johnny Depp. I'm oh. I'm a big fan of that movie. Would it give me give me 10 seconds on that movie? What do you what do you think of that? Yeah, you know, I. I think it's a good movie, but I always I always have a hard time when I don't like the remakes as much as I like the originals. Mm -hmm. And I know it's not the exact same as. Yeah. Um, you know, the Gene Wilder, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate right. Factory. But it's a good movie and it's probably one I should revisit. It's just every time I want to revisit that story, I just want to go back and revisit the Gene Wilder version because I just think that's like one of the best comedy performances. Yeah, ever. no, I get that. I, I'm a big Tim Burton fan as well. So anytime oh, I can watch one of his films, I, I try to do that. Um, he is. 
he's he's very dark for somebody who makes movies kind of for kids it's it's interesting but i had a lot of fun watching that um but what about you what do you watch this week yeah so i watched those three that we said to watch um mm-hmm. uh social network zodiac and fight club i also watched the yeah. girl with the dragon tattoo because i hadn't seen it in a while and wow wow um and then Ooh. i kind of i kind of went on a bender this week i watched nice guys um i've got i watched you've got mail uh the wizard of oz sleeping with other people which is like kind of an underrated yeah. uh you know, comedy dramedy with Jason Sudeikis. Right. And then I watched a documentary on Netflix called athlete a, Oh yeah. A super disturbing documentary about, uh, all of the misconduct and sexual assault allegations, uh, from USA gymnastics. And, uh, that thoroughly disturbed me, which is why I turned on the wizard of Oz right afterwards. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I highly recommend it was very well done. Um, you know, don't watch it with children in the room and also be prepared to feel really shitty about <laughs> about society when you yeah. watch that one. No, it does seem I mean, that's that's heavy material. So I'm definitely looking forward to seeing that, though. Netflix is really pushing it right now. So, yeah, I'm their documentary get on the train. Their documentaries, I think. I think it's my favorite part of what they, they do, do really with their original content. Work. They're yeah. really, really, really crushing. Yeah. Uh, the documentary department. Just so. to go backwards for a quick second. Um, the nice guys. Yes. That, I love that movie. You know, that's a, I don't think that ever got the, that ever, never got the love it deserved. I think it's one of my Didn't. favorite Gosling performances because it's yeah. so different than like what he normally does where he's mm-hmm. like this like suave kind of smartest guy in the room. Um, he's often very he, reserved. Like he, yeah. he kind of keeps it inside. But in that movie, he's, he's letting it loose. Yeah. I think it was I, I like the vibe I get watching that movie. And I have no idea if this is true. It's just that those guys had like a ton of fun on set. Like they were just like loving working with each other. And right. who doesn't love a good buddy cop movie? I mean, yeah, exactly. So we're going to a, a different style. We're going to talk about a buddy cop movie today. It's definitely a different <laughs> style than the nice guys. But yes, um, it's a tried and true uh, format. So always love a good buddy cop. Yes. OK. That being yeah. said, I think it's time to get into our main man today yes mr david fincher so before we dive in i'm just going to give you a quick rundown of david fincher's career all right and kind of his life a little bit not really too much of his life denver colorado born 1962 so how old does that make him uh, 50 this isn't a math podcast yeah whatever bad podcasting um little known fact or well-known fact he gained recognition directing music videos before he started directing feature films. Uh, and then a fun fact, he was has an assistant cameraman credit on The Empire Strikes Back and Indiana Jones Temple of Doom. So I thought that was really interesting. He, that's, he was close to the magic Yes, during that period in time. That's I think you'll find with a lot of these people that we'll talk about, especially more modern directors, you'll look back and see what projects they were kind of around, just sniffing around, and they are... Yeah, they're usually near really, really important movies. They're all over the history. Stuff, yeah. All right. So diving into his directorial credits, he makes his directorial debut in 1992 with Alien 3. Then he bursts on the scene 95 with 7, 97, The Game, 1999, Fight Club, 2002, Panic Room, 2007, Zodiac, 2008, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. 2010, The Social Network, 
2011, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. 2013 is when he starts his Netflix experiment and he kind of branches away from movies for a minute and gets into prestige television. Uh, he's the director and producer of House of Cards that ran from 2013 to 2018. Then 2014, he comes back to movies with Gone Girl, and that's the last movie he made. Um, and he then went on in 2017, 2017 through 2019 to do another Netflix show, Mindhunter. Mm-hmm. So, oh, and then 2019, the last thing he's done um, is Love, Death, and Robots, which I know nothing about. I haven't seen yet. Uh, I hadn't heard anything about it. So interested to check that out uh, in the future. So, Evan, I gave you the rundown. Hold What's, on, really quick. One thing yeah. to note while you're naming off those movies, putting aside the TV shows, which are also very good, the dude does not miss. The yeah. dude does not miss. <laughs> well, you kind of jumped the gun on my question. There. lineup of movies. Yeah, I was going to ask you what, what stands out when I read down that list. And yeah. I think that's it, is that he just doesn't miss. I mean, when you look at down, like down the list from, I mean, Alien 3, whatever. I, you know, don't. It's not fun. my favorite. Not my, yeah. It's fine. No, it's fine. But from seven, basically to Gone Girl, there isn't a bad movie. No, and I would argue that there's not even a like an okay movie. I think they're all great. I personally, my yeah. probably least favorite is Curious Case of Benjamin Button. But there's a lot of people that really ride hard for that movie. So I can't, you I know, really I can't like sit here and be like it's bad because it's not. It's um, not. I mean, he doesn't make you know if if we're grading it like we would in school. I don't think there's a movie in there that's below a B like that is yeah. pretty unbelievable. He, you know, that yeah. that's just consistency. And that, and one of the things that we'll talk about with Fincher is, is he gets close, but he might not have um, as many a pluses as some of the guys like, uh, you know, a Hitchcock or a Scorsese or what have you. But um, just between that, like B plus to a range, it it's a lot of movies. Yeah. He's got a lot of, like you said, B pluses where they didn't all make a ton of noise. I mean, obviously there are some on that list. Fight Club. They do make cult, a lot of money. Cult, cult classic. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Save for one. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, they always are, are pretty much critically acclaimed. And yeah. uh, he's like your favorite director's favorite director. Right. Uh, yeah. So no, that's, that's true. And, and people really um, admire the work that he does on movies too. Not even just mm-hmm. the finished product uh, product, but we'll definitely get into that. Yeah. So, I ask you what stands out to you. Mm-hmm. What's your relationship with Fincher before we really like dive in deep into like some of the movies that he's done and maybe a little bit more about his directorial style. Yeah. You know, before researching this pod, you know, when you think David Fincher, what's, what are you thinking? When I think of David Fincher, uh, one, I think of, of really good movies, movies that I like and that I return to a lot. Um, two, I think of, of, the connection that all of his movies have in both look and feel definitely, especially the feel. Um, I don't think I knew too much about David Fincher until I was getting a little bit older in 10, 11, when he was coming out with a uh, social network and girl with the dragon tattoo. I really liked those movies. And then I started going back and looking at what he had made. And when I saw seven and fight club, I was just like, Whoa, those are some of my favorite movies from growing growing up. Some of the, you know, we talk about really starting to understand that movies are important and are uh, have meaning behind them. And those were some of the first ones that I remember as a kid really enjoying, but also thinking like, wow, this movie seems like it's saying something or it is trying to get a point across. Um, so 
the, that's basically the biggest connection that I make with David Fincher is just that he makes really good movies that I watch all the time. I watch these movies. I mean, most of these movies that we listed off that he's made, I, I watch almost once a year. Like I love returning to sometimes to more. Films. Sometimes more. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We'll get to a couple of these that I watch once a month. Yeah. I was thinking about, about him when I was running down that list, you know, and save a couple, he makes so many movies that are simultaneously great to just carve out time, sit down and watch. Mm-hmm. And also, great to like hey if they're on tnt on a late afternoon oh. like i'm gonna catch the back half of it or oh, like 100 oh, oh there's only 20 minutes or like oh i gotta stay for this scene like yep. there's so much you know like i want to sit down and, and take in this entire piece of art but a lot of his movies almost have like uh especially i i feel like his like later latter half they yeah. have like phases to them so it's like yeah you know you can you know, oh, this is like the first part of the movie. It's like, oh, well, I'll yep. pop, I'm popping in in the second part. Like, I got to stay through this whole thing. You know, they're like movies within movies, which I think mm-hmm. is, you know, as we can talk about later, maybe yeah. something that led him, uh, you know, maybe a perfect fit for TV. Um, yes. But I think he thinks so. Yeah, he, I, I definitely think he, TV shows. Yeah. And I think he likes TV shows for a couple of reasons. And I think the number one reason that he likes TV shows, and I think the whole reason the uh, relationship with Netflix developed is he likes control. Right. Yeah. He wants to have control of his projects. Mm-hmm. And Netflix is renowned for giving creative control to the director, sometimes almost to a fault. Right. Where, right. you know, you'll watch now Netflix movies and they'll maybe just seem like they're like 90 percent uh, done is what some people will say. And it's really just like they haven't had like a second, you know, or third or fourth person, you know, like polishing it, putting in their input. And, you know, directors are awesome, but sometimes when you give them, you know, that much power you just kind of see the raw version of of uh, what the idea was in their head. Mm-hmm. Right. All right. And then I'm going to open it up to you. Yeah. I tasked you with this. Tell me about David Fincher's style. You can, I'm going to leave it super open-ended. I yeah. want you to tell the people what David Fincher's directing style is like. Yeah. Uh, I, I would be happy to, and I'm really excited. I was taking a bunch of notes when I was watching his movies and thinking of my relationship with his movies and, and what carries through, because I think David Fincher is definitely somebody who, even if you're not super familiar with who he is, when you're about 30 minutes into one of his movies, even if you don't know it's him, you can kind of be like, mm, this feels like something else that I've yeah. seen. This this is giving me the feeling it has the look of something that I that I either like or was disturbed by. Yeah. Um, but it's very uh, he definitely has patterns that carry yeah. through. And I don't want to interrupt you, but yeah, you know, he's probably one of the first people I remember like noticing that, like you said, yeah. Or I'm like, God, this reminds me like, you know, visually or, Mm -hmm. or, you know, conceptually, this reminds me a lot of this movie. And then I'd like look Mm -hmm. it up and I'd be like, Oh my God, they're the same director. Yeah. That happens to me. That that's kind of for me, part, partly at what the ethos of like getting into movies was as I'd be like, Oh, there are similarities between this. And then you find these like connective tissue, right? Right. Like last episode, we talked about Roger Deakins and his cinematography. You know, it's like mm-hmm. there are like, how do you, you know, how do you find the common thread between 1917, you know, and uh, Skyfall? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. They look almost the same. Like when yeah. you put them next to each other, the lighting looks almost the same. Yeah. And so it's really fascinating that you say that because I had that same experience where he was one of the first yeah. people where I'm like, huh, I know who this guy is, even though I don't know who this guy is. Right. So anyway, continue. Yeah. Absolutely. So getting into what those because I was just talking about, you know, a thread of style that he has. But let's talk about the actual style and and what makes up that style. Um, 
And the first thing, and, and we were just talking about how much control David Fincher likes to have, uh, that permeates throughout all phases of the of the movie making process for him. Um, so the first thing that I wrote down is he has a real sense of purpose. When when something shows up on the screen in a David Fincher film, whether it's a close up on a watch or on a photograph or it's a wide shot of a few different characters, everybody and everything is in the shot for for a reason. He mm -hmm. wants you to see things. He doesn't waste shots. He doesn't show random vistas without any sort of meaning or purpose. Um, he's very specific in what he's putting on the screen, which is something that I really respect about him and something that I'm sure makes him a little bit difficult to work with because he has mm -hmm. a very singular vision in what he's going for. Um, another thing that, that he does is he, he loves perversion. He loves the perverse. He loves people's oh, dark side. And yeah. I could, I, I needed to find the exact quote. I couldn't find it, but he talks about everyone having a perverse side, everyone having a certain perversion and really wanting to show on screen the different dark sides that people have. Um, that's like, I think that's a really common thread throughout all his movies is yeah. he likes to show the worst parts of humanity. A hundred percent through likable characters. Most of the time they can be, they can be, yeah, they're always clever. So one, one yeah. theme of David Fincher and, and something that I really like about him is if you notice lots of the bad guys in his movie, the quote unquote bad guys who are usually killers or or ladies when i say bad guys i was i'm generalizing but bad guys or girls um the villains the villains they're always very clever and very on top of their game i i like to think that david fincher because lots of directors kind of put themselves in movies i like to think he puts himself in the movie of the most evil character every time because they're always very precise they always have a plan they're always kind of one step ahead um, which makes it very interesting considering he loves kind of studying the perverse that his most perverse characters seem to be a representation of him. Yeah. Um, one, that's deeply disturbing having watched Girl with disturbing. the Dragon Tattoo. But two, there always seems to be this moment in these movies where the villain, you know, kind of gives that like, I'm smarter than you and this is how I was getting yeah. away with this the whole time yes. speech. And it's almost like they they get caught because they want to be and you get the sense in all of his movies that the I guess the good the good people uh, can tend sometimes to stumble into right. you know, catching the bad guy or yeah. uh, the bad guy like gives themselves up. Yes, it's very it's very interesting. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. But yeah, so expand. Go on. OK, OK. I didn't mean to cut you off, but no. no. Um, just kind of getting into it a lot. The last couple of things that I had one, the look of his movies. Um, I mentioned the specific shots, but you'll notice a lot. The, the camera always has, and he's known for using a lot of natural lighting, but the camera always has like either a yellow or a green or a blue tint to it. And to me, yeah. that kind of really gets to like, there's always something lurking in the shadows in his movies. There's always something around the corner and that's why i don't think he makes you know i don't know if any of his movies could actually be called horror movies but they terrify me yeah i had that note down too and this is without doing any research on kind of like what his styling cues are mm -hmm. um, but when i think david fincher i think really cold color palette like you said you know lots of greens lots of blues mm -hmm. um it's almost like a lot of the people it, it feels like the life is being sucked out of the people yes. in his movies everyone's very uh 
like, I want to say pale because they like clammy almost all the time. Um, It's yeah, it's really interesting. And it just creates that air of like mystery. And honestly, for me, it's like intensity. It's like every time I, I am like watching a movie, it could be like, you know, any type of thing. You just feel like there's something going on that you don't know. And you, you just know that he knows. Yeah. You like, you don't get a chance to catch your breath. I think is a mm-hmm. great way to put it. Uh, yeah, exactly. And, and that kind of lends itself to, uh, you know, another thing that I made note of that I think is very obvious in his, in his movies is that so many of his mo- movies are like a puzzle. You know, you're mm. putting together the pieces. Lots of them are, are thrillers. Lots of them are crime thrillers, psychological thrillers, which, which, you know, lends themselves to puzzle pieces. But when you look at Seven, uh, Zodiac, The Game, Fight Club to an extent, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, Gone Girl, even kind of Panic Room, they're all mysteries, whether it's trying to solve who the killer is or how somebody disappeared or how to get out of a situation. Mm. It's always kind of putting together puzzle pieces to arrive at the ultimate, um, ultimate conclusion, which is kind of, you know, I think the way he goes about making movies, too. Yeah. And, you know, the fascinating thing about Fincher is, you know, we'll talk about a lot of directors on this on this show uh, that write their own material. Fincher Mm -hmm. does not do that. He does not is working with screenwriters. And so the fact that we are able to feel that on top of a story that's like really not his, it's just Mm -hmm. the purely the way he's telling the story. Exactly. Just goes to show you how much of his thumbprint is on every piece that he makes. Exactly. It's incredible. And he has a very good sense of what he can make into a great movie. Mm-hmm. I'm sure he's reading stories all the time, reading books. Lots of these uh, these movies come from books. Um, some are just original screenplays. I'm sure he's reading stuff all the time. And his sense of what he can make great is, is very um, keen. And one more thing that I wanted to mention before we move on. Well, two more things. One, music. Uh, music is a and and yes, the score is a big part so of his happy movies. You mentioned this. Whether it's the song choices that he uses, along with just the musical score playing in the background uh, of movies, and we'll definitely get into that more in individual movies. But it, yeah. it's hard to talk about David Fincher without talking about the sound. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, early on, I feel like he used a lot more like popular music. Like mm-hmm. I think that's one of the most iconic. Um, scenes of the entire 90s is you know spoiler alert at the end of fight club when all the buildings are falling down right and where is my mind by the pixies is playing in yeah. the background is just like chills just thinking about it i, it's I know it's, it's so good kind of cliche yeah it's a and little then, bit cliche but it's it's perfect but it's almost like and i wish i was like old enough at the time to like remember what it was like because like i don't it might be cliche looking back but was it right. cliche then probably not fair it fair was, and then the other thing is in his more recent work um, he works a lot with Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. So yes. Trent Reznor is the lead singer of Nine Inch Nails. Mm-hmm. And he has created, in my opinion, working with Fincher, some of the most iconic scores of the last 15, 20 years, just because He's of cool. how unique um, and like impactful they are. And everything that we're talking about, right? Like it's all just this recipe to create Fincher's touch on movies. It's this, you know, this intensity. We talked about the cold colors and, you know, in that air of mystery and intensity. But when you have that and on the back of it, you're hearing just like, boom, you know, in like a score, like these really reverby, echoey, like giant, like, Mm -hmm. like almost like um, bell tolls or, you know, Atticus uh, Ross and and Reznor, you know, what they do a lot is make really like intense sounds. It's like you build up, you build up and then it gets quiet and then like, boom, it's almost like a bass drop. 
um, you know, as far as musical score goes. Yeah. Uh, it definitely adds to the intrigue of individual scenes and the movie as a whole. Um, not only visually are you engaged in a mystery, but just the sounds that you're hearing it almost kind of confuse you and keep you on your toes. Yeah. It, it's very, it's almost hard to explain. You're doing a better job than I am, but I think, um, uh, I didn't obviously didn't go to film school. The only movie class I took in all of college was actually, uh, film music, basically mm. like the history of music in films and like the theory behind it. So You're at some point, um, we will do a podcast on that because it is a fascinating topic. Yeah. And it's when you do that, it's going to increase your enjoyment of watching movies like tenfold when you are understanding what a lot of the time the music is pointing you to what's happening or about to happen Absolutely. or it's trying to fake you out. Um, mm -hmm. And so it plays a huge part in every movie, uh, especially in Fincher movies. But there's yeah. one last thing about his style uh, that I think you were going to mention. And I, I want you to tell everybody about. Okay. I'm going to mention the last thing that I have. And if it's not what you had, I'd love for you to add. But it's impossible to talk about David Fincher without talking about his relationship with movie stars. Yes, that's and exactly what I people who act in his movies. <laughs> um, a couple notes on this. First, David Fincher gets incredible performances out of his stars in every movie. Demands them. Demands that's them. The biggest takeaway I had from watching a ton of David Fincher movies this week, back to back to back. Um, and thinking on his movies is that I love the performances in every single one of them. I, I can't even think of a leading performance that I was, you know, so, so on. Um, and then kind of going off of that, David Fincher, as we mentioned, is a micromanager and he demands a lot. He is famous for making people do take after take after take after take after take. And when they think they have the perfect take on the 22nd, he has them do 40 more. Yeah. And he uses, I don't know which one he ends up using. But yeah, it's fascinating. He, he wants about... to, it, what it seems like is he's trying to, especially a lot of his movies, people are in these desperate situations. And it's almost right. like to pull that true desperation out of the actor. Mm -hmm. He needs to like get them to a point where they're like, I just am desperate to get this scene over with. <laughs> it's exactly. Like... He says he hates earnestness in actors. He doesn't want them to like seem like they're trying really hard to act. And I think that when you break somebody down like that, you know, yeah. mentally and probably physically, it kind of takes away that trying to act aspect and you're just kind of saying the lines at a certain point. Yeah, I agree. And I think he's got, I don't know who his casting director is, um, but I think that has a large part to do with it. He probably picks the perfect people for mm -hmm. every single role. He does. It's incredible. Um, yeah, that that is what I was hoping you were going to say. Yes. Can Speak I add one anecdote on that? Yes. So one, one David Fincher anecdote in the social network, um, the opening scene, which is just, unbelievable between Rooney Mara and Jesse Eisenberg. Um, they're sitting in a bar and they have, I don't even know, maybe a five and a half minute long conversation. And then it leads into the title sequence. Mm. They did 99 takes of that scene. 99 takes. That is insane. Imagine just sitting here right now and saying one sentence 99 times in her. I would go absolutely insane. Yeah. Isn't it? <laughs> Isn't this the social network also the movie where um, it's written by Sorkin, right? Yeah. Aaron Sorkin. Aaron Sorkin. And they went through the like the screenplay and basically were like, oh, this is going to be a seven hour movie. And so they went through and timed every scene, like how yeah. quick they think it should take. And so when they were on set with these actors, they're like, all right, great take. Uh, that was 30 seconds too slow. 
and then they would maybe yeah. do it again. Like, and they'd be talking as fast as they possibly could. Yeah, it's, <laughs> and I think that just goes to show. It's like he doesn't settle. He's not like you know what that take was good enough. He's right. like this is what exactly what I'm looking for. Mm-hmm. And even when you think you give it to me, what I'm actually probably looking for is something that I'm not telling you. So yeah. we're gonna keep doing it until I I find out what mm-hmm. I'm looking for. And pretty famously, after filming Zodiac, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal was not a fan. Yes, of we'll, and we'll get to that a little bit more. But yeah, uh, he, he broke the man. He down. was broken. May, yes. may or may not have like derailed his career for like a hot minute. Mm, we'll get into that a little bit more. I think Jake Gyllenhaal has done all right. But no, yeah. I agree. I agree. Uh, but I, I think you. I think where he was headed. Right. Yeah. Anyway, that being said, that's all about David Fincher. A little bit about his history. A little bit about his style. Now we're going to go into the homework that we gave you guys. The three movies that are some of Fincher's most important movies that we wanted you to watch. Fight Club, Social Network, and Zodiac. We're just going to do a small, not a super deep dive uh, on these movies, but just a small discussion, you know, about why they're important, why we chose them. And Uh, we'll definitely touch on on them more in the top five, too. You know, we're going to kind of split the conversation a little bit. Yeah. Spoiler alert. These are movies that we picked for a reason. They're going to show up in our top five, most likely. So, Evan, started it out. Tell me a little bit more about Fight Club. Fight Club. Fight Club came out in 1999. It stars Brad Pitt, Ed Norton, and Helena Bonham Carter. Um, Jim Oles wrote the screenplay. And it is about two guys um, who are pretty down on their luck. One, the main character played by Ed Norton, is definitely down on his luck. And they create an underground um, male fight club, which ends up turning into a group of anarchist um, terrorists, essentially, who whose stated goal is to take down uh, the man, take down society <laughs> and what they view society's, um, you know, evil, which is um, credit card companies and, and debt holders. Mm. Um, so it is, it is an absolute wild ride. And as far as David Fincher movies go, there's a, there's a different feel with fight club. It's very Fincher-esque, but there's also a chaos and a, a, a sort of panic that is not as prevalent in lots of his other movies, which is what made, you know, it really exciting to talk about and rewatch but as far as success goes it made a hundred million dollars on a 63 million million dollar budget which is fine um but it's it's second life as a cult classic is definitely what it's it's most known for and i think uh there, there's not that many people out there who haven't heard of fight club yeah i agree so evan what's the first rule of fight club you don't talk about fight club exactly we're gonna break that rule today the second rule of fight club <sighs> you don't talk about fight club we don't talk about fight club yeah that yes. um Fight Club is a movie, and I, I hesitate to say this, but it's a movie I don't know if we could fully appreciate until we got to a certain age. I think it is one of the most important movies, um, the reason it became a cult classic, for people that were uh, adolescents or young adults mm-hmm. around the time that it came out. It, It's just so, like you said, it's about sticking it to the man. And like it, when you were a kid, like that's all you wanted to do. You're yeah. just like, fuck you, mom and dad. Yeah. Like, I'm gonna watch Fight Club. Tyler Durden says that we should burn down, you know, credit exactly. card companies and debt holders. Right. And, and you know, and you it's know. not subtle. No, it's not it, subtle about that either. <laughs> I mean, one of the main plot points at the very beginning is 
you know, the main character has insomnia and, and that's the real horror that Fincher involves in the film. You know what your life would be like if you couldn't sleep at all. And the only way you can sleep is by going to like help groups. And one that he really likes is a help group for people with testicular cancer. So, you know, he's not subtle about saying, like, what is more demasculizing than literally losing your testicles? Uh, so David Fincher, like I talked about uh, last pod, he's definitely hitting you over the head with it. That's a theme. I mean, I think that's a theme throughout all his movies, right? Is he's he's literally banging you over the head with like, listen to what I'm saying. Like, I'm not trying to be subtle. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter. Just enjoy what I'm talking about. Right. Um, this is a great movie. It is an awesome Ed Norton performance. Yeah. Probably one of his more iconic. I mean, I would say it's in the top three of iconic. Norton's. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's definitely one of his bigger films as far as just amount of money made and, and exposure. Yeah. It's an insanely good Brad Pitt. I mean, it is. it's so good. And I think He's this goes rail. to show you that Brad Pitt is the best at being the second lead in a movie mm-hmm. when he can play off of people. Yeah, that's when he really shines. Like, I think he does an okay job carrying movies. Uh, I mean, obviously, okay, he does a great job carrying movies. Okay, but okay. my favorite pit performances right. are him as the second man. Ergo, Ocean's Eleven. Ocean's Eleven. We're gonna talk yeah. about it on every pod, people. We're gonna right, talk about yeah. every pod because it's the best. Ocean's Our running is the theme. best. Yes. And I wish that Brad Pitt was in Lady Bird. Anyway, so <laughs> moving on. Um, wait, hold you, on. Before you a second, yeah, I don't, I don't mean to cut you off. Tell me. Yeah, no problem. I just wanted to mention uh, a couple. There's great dialogue in this movie. Um, one, one great quote from uh, Tyler Durden, who's played by Brad Pitt, is um, he says, "You have to consider the possibility that God does not want you, nor does He like you." And I think that's just <laughs> hilarious. Again, David Fincher hitting us right over the head with it. Like, go down into a basement and fight some guys, huh? Oh. <laughs> God does not care about you. I, I like that idea and especially goes along with with the theme of, you know, perversion and um, how evil the world is, I think, in the eyes of David Fincher. And then one other one that I wanted to, to know, it's not a specific uh, quote, but I just was dying laughing when I heard it. Um, Brad Pitt's character asks Ed Norton's character. If he could fight anyone, any famous person, who would he fight? And he says he'd fight William Shatner. And uh, for some reason, that's just the funniest shit in the world. <laughs> yeah. You know, what's funny is, you know, sometimes when we watch those comedy shows like Family Guy or South Park that make all these cultural references and then you hadn't seen what they're referencing yet. And then so when you actually see what they're referencing, you're like, oh, and then you like right. retroactively laugh that. I think they do that in Family Guy. And I think that I, mm-hmm. I when I first watched Fight Club, it made me laugh out loud that part right the last thing i will say about fight club uh, a theme with fincher is his endings are iconic he knows how to wrap up a movie um with the best of them and this ending is so 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 good we talked about it earlier but where is my mind yeah the pixies is playing and the buildings are just yeah exploding Time to note too. We're, we're you know we'll try to keep them to a minimum, but we're definitely going to spoil some stuff. Yeah, that, you know we're going to expect that either people have seen them or they will see them and and aren't going to worry about spoilers. Yeah, we will. The movies that we you know we say to watch uh, for the podcast, mm-hmm. we'll definitely spoil a little bit. Yeah, we'll try to keep the spoilers on you know movies that we speak about outside of those right. to a minimum. You know, but some of them you just gotta watch, man. You yeah, just gotta watch. They're so good. Okay, 
Perfect. Let's move on. Let's moving on. Zodiac. This was my homework assignment. Uh, 2007, Jake Gyllenhaal, Robert Downey Jr., Mark Ruffalo, Anthony Edwards, among a host of many other actors. Uh, it's late 1960s and 70s, and the fear grips the city of San Francisco and surrounding areas as a serial killer called the Zodiac stalks its residents. Um, this is all about investigators Mark Ruffalo, Anthony Edwards, and reporters Jake Gyllenhaal and Robert Downey Jr. as they become obsessed with trying to find the killer's identity and bring him to justice. So this is a true story. In the 60s and 70s, there was a serial killer called Zodiac in Northern California, surrounding San Francisco. Right. And it, over the course of decades, you know, kind of shook uh, the area because he was, spoiler alert, never caught. And this is based on a book uh, by Robert Gray Smith, who Jake Gyllenhaal is playing in the movie. And a couple of things that I love about this movie. One, I think it's Robert Downey Jr.'s best performance, in my opinion. I know. Um, I won't argue with that. Yeah. Uh, Mark Ruffalo gives an unbelievably good performance. Oh. Jill and Hall's performance is amazing. It doesn't stand out as much to me because he's doing some, he's doing things a lot more subtly. And you're just watching him slowly lose his mind throughout the movie. Mm -hmm. His character is losing his mind because throughout the movie, he just becomes obsessed with trying to find the identity of the Zodiac. But right. also, simultaneously, Jake Gyllenhaal was losing his mind <laughs> while trying to finish this David movie Fincher. with David Fincher, which I think is just something that Fincher did so perfectly. Right. Uh, a couple of other things about this movie. It is two hours and 45 minutes long. It is a long movie. Mm -hmm. But this is one of those movies. It's basically like a three-part movie. There's like a very clear beginning, and then there's another. there's a jump forward in time. And then there's a final jump forward in time. And there are three very distinct like eras of when they're hunting the Zodiac. Mm -hmm. um, I think that one of the coolest things about what they did in this movie is recreating 1970s, 60s San Francisco, like yeah. digitally, right. is so, so cool. Like, obviously, I, was, yeah, I wasn't around then. But, you know, seeing pictures and seeing like how mm -hmm. they were able to like visually recreate this um, is incredible. It is a top five, it might be a top, more than top five, maybe top three, uh, like newsroom, like newspaper yeah, movie ever, it is. even though that's kind of like not truly what it's about. The San Francisco that's what David Fincher says it's about, though. Yeah, which I, I that's what I love about that is mm -hmm. he, he really like the San Francisco Chronicle and like the staff of the San Francisco Chronicle play a huge part in the history of the Zodiac because he sent uh, like a basically a puzzle. Uh, to them to try to like say who he was and right. essentially was like i'll kill more people if you don't publish it and so they mm -hmm. ended up publishing it and that's how this robert graysmith character played by jake gyllenhaal who was actually a cartoonist like starts to become obsessed uh, mm -hmm. with this um so one of the things from this movie um that i remembered from my first watch and the three or four times i've seen it since is how scary it is yeah it that's is an that's another thing. It's the scariest non-scary movie ever. It it really is. Like the the cold open with the two people getting killed in the car. Like talk about my biggest fears much more than, you know, Freddy or Jason yeah. or, you know, even like the shark in Jaws um, or something like that. Like somebody just with no intention whatsoever coming up and shooting me dead or stabbing me to death is horrifying to think about um and yeah. this movie does that very well introducing people 
you know, to their demise. Yeah. So all the Zodiac killings are pretty horrifying to watch. Mm -hmm. That first one's like kind of comes out of nowhere because like you said, it's a cold open. You're literally like, oh, I wonder, you know, uh, come in and watch a movie. And then you see that. The killing, the stabbing at the lake scene is the hardest scene I've like routinely. I know it's coming and I just you can't look away, but it's also just so brutal because it's so realistic. Like yeah. they don't, it doesn't pull punches. It doesn't try to be like too Hollywood. It's literally just like you're looking at somebody just getting like laying on their back, tied right. up, getting stabbed to death. It is so brutal. And then simultaneously, what makes David Fincher <laughs> so horrifying to me kind of is that it's beautiful. Oh. It's a beautiful day out. They're doing all these wide shots of the lake, even when the Zodiac comes up in his hood and, um, you know, all black garb. Um they do some wide shots and it's just like a beautiful vista next to a lake. And then we, you see two people, well, one gets stabbed to death. One ends up surviving, but yeah, it's such a contrast in, in, in look. Yeah. The other, the other scariest part, the thing that like keeps me coming back to this movie is it doesn't matter how many times you've seen it, but those scenes where, uh, you know, either Ruffalo or Graysmith is like in the room with a person that they really think is the Zodiac. Like there are a couple of like clues pointing them that this is that person. And there is just this incredible on-screen tension between Mm -hmm. all the actors. Um, Basically like either looking, you know, if it's in the case of Ruffalo and Anthony Edwards, like kind of looking at each other being like, holy shit, like this is our guy. Yeah. And like being like, what do we do? Because we don't have enough. We really don't have like enough to get him on. Like we need him to like slip up or uh, Gyllenhaal. Like, one of the scariest scenes in any movie where really nothing happens is Hall walks down into the basement of somebody looking for some old movie posters where he had thought the Zodiac might uh, have, or he had identified that the Zodiac might have worked so that he could uh, match the handwriting to mm-hmm. the cipher. Um, they had matched those old movie posters. And he goes, oh, do you happen to have any of these that I can take in? And the guy's like, yeah. And he goes, okay, cool. You know, like I wanted to, you know, make sure because, you know, we think this could be, uh, you know, this person's, thing and he goes oh no he didn't make those posters i did and then it's just like yeah it washes over joan hall that's like oh my god what if this guy's a zodiac and he just about to have a panic attack like sprints out and it's oh oh my god it is so so scary it's very just horrifying yeah there's there's a lot of points like that in the movie um and it's just kind of oh go ahead you watch everybody go insane throughout it i think there's a couple other things that we need to touch on really quick um before uh first of all it was a huge flop it was on a budget of 65 million it only made 33 million it's really only become kind of a a well-renowned fincher movie in you know it only came out in 2007 so it's not that long ago but it's i would very say critically acclaimed yeah too. it always was but it didn't make a ton of money which right. was not good uh and then the last thing is there's no real ending to this movie and I think that's one of the pieces that's so brilliant is we talked about earlier that Fincher is great with endings. And I think he, the best part about this movie is it imitates real life. You know, like they never really caught him. It, you know, they, they speculate it's widely believed to be this person, Arthur Lee Allen, right. who, you know, spoiler alert, but you'll understand that the minute he comes on screen in the movie. Mm. Um, but you never really know and you never get that closure and that's how watching this movie feels it's so unsatisfying in the most satisfying way it just leaves you wanting more like i could watch it's one of those 
you know, movies where if, if it there was like four more movies, <laughs> I would probably mm-hmm. watch it, even though like really nothing happens. Me too. Um, yeah. So that's all I had to say about that movie. Zodiac. Last, hold on. Before we move on, um, hit me with who? What's your favorite performance in the movie? Like I just said, I think it's Robert Downey Jr.'s best, but I don't know if he's doing as much acting because he's just kind of being Robert Downey Jr. It's like I said, it's the casting thing. He's Fincher's so good at getting the right people in these roles. Um, Robert Downey Jr. is playing this like really neurotic reporter and he's literally just being like every Robert Downey Jr. interview I've ever seen throughout time. It's just him being him. In the first half, though. In right? the first half, yes. Yeah. The back half as he's like slowly going crazy from this mm-hmm. and you know, develops a drinking problem. Yes, there's more acting there. It's very, still very, very good. Uh, I think what Ruffalo does is much more subtle and gets a lot more emotional emotion out of me. And he's also Ruffalo's kind of the he's like the the center of the movie, really. When you think about it, he's like the you know the guiding light. Is it because every time you have you know Downey Jr. and and Jill and Hall and all these other people being like, we figured it out. We got this. He's the authority. That's like, I can't bring him in unless we have this and this and this. And right. like, I believe you, but like, we need to like, we need to think about this like realistically. And mm-hmm. yeah, I think it's probably Ruffalo, even though I think that it's Robert Downey Jr.'s best performance. I think Ruffalo does something that not a lot of people can accomplish in this movie. Would, would you agree? Yeah. So, uh, yes, I think Mark Ruffalo is pitch perfect in this movie in every yeah. single scene. I, I'm a huge fan of Jake Gyllenhaal. I think he's great in this movie. Robert Downey Jr., you know, the first few times I'd watched this I is always who I came away remembering, you know. Uh, I agree. I look back. Um, and he was he's awesome. I don't think he could have changed anything. But Mark Ruffalo is so automatic in every scene. And what I was really noticing in this last rewatch are his bow ties. His bow ties are, are, his the, are the scenes. <laughs> his hair too, as a, as a oh, curly haired fella, I yes. can really appreciate the hair that he had going. Dude, he's, then, yeah, he looks phenomenal. He's doing scenes with the other big, because outside of those three guys, there are a lot of big time actors in that movie. And mm-hmm. anytime he's in a scene, I could not look away from Mark Ruffalo. Yeah, he's, I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't concentrate on anybody else. So I, I had to give him the crown for this one. But um, yeah, I agree with you. That. I think you said it perfectly. When you first watch it, you're like, Robert Downey Jr. Holy shit. What a performance. And then you watch it a couple more times. And like after you get aw- like away from that initial uh, wow factor, because Robert Downey Jr. Is, you know, he's neurotic. He's all up in your face. Right. After you get mm-hmm. away from that and you're just like, oh, my God, dude, Mark Ruffalo just mm-hmm. crushed it and like yeah. crushed it. But without like. He does it so, like I said, he does it so subtly. He doesn't need right. to be like he's not. He steals every scene, mm-hmm. but like under from under your nose. Like it's yeah. not like he's like out there like doing the most. It's everything right. he does is very nuanced. It's very subtle. Agreed. Uh, yeah, my favorite performance, Zodiac. Love this movie. Yeah, um, I've probably watched this movie. I should have mentioned this on last week's pod when we said movies we watch the most. I think I've watched this like 10 to 15 times. I don't think that'll get up in like my most most because, you know, all the other comedies and stuff. But I've seen this movie quite a bit. Um, I'm not a scary movie person. I do not like scary movies. And so this is about as scary as I go where I can like get my fix. Or if I'm in a room with people and they're like, oh, let's watch a scary movie. I'm like, let's watch Zodiac because I'm like, yeah, "Yeah, it's scary enough where people are like, yeah, this is a scary movie. 
but it's not so scary that I'm going to have to sleep with the lights on because I'm, I got you. I'm a big scaredy cat. Um, all right, moving on. The final uh, homework assignment movie is 2010's The Social Network. Evan, yes. talk to me about this. So uh, now, now that we're getting to it, you know, I have a feeling this is going to be really high on both of our lists um, for top five. So do, do we want to save this one and just save it for top five conversation? Yeah, fuck it. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's save, save it, it for the top five conversation. It. We got to save something. I'll, I'll sub something in right here. If you'll give me 30 seconds to go full nerd mode, I would love to. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. the reticence is much appreciated. But um, full nerd mode. Just a little background on why I chose these three movies to be the homework assignment for this week and why we covered them. And this is just my view. I have no idea what David Fincher would think of this. I'm sure he would say I'm, I'm 100% wrong. But from Fight Club to Zodiac to Social Network. Fight Club, to me, it, it, there's a certain chaos to it. And there's a mm -hmm. certain like throwing stuff at the screen. And even visually, there's a lot of people moving to and from the screen, which yeah. is something that you don't notice all the time but is is weird in a movie it, it's very out of focus it's kind of hard to watch it's almost like it requires a ton of focus it's right. one of those movies that really kind of exhaust you visually um you have to pay attention to the characters because there's a lot going on in every sequence and it's loud uh like when people are getting punched it's very loud um mm. coming out of out of the speaker so that's a very kind of chaotic um movie and then Zodiac is such a procedural. There's so much nuance in people searching for clues and people trying to figure things out. And do we have it? No, we don't quite have it. We need more. Um, and I like to think of Fincher coming out of Fight Club um, and Panic Room, which also has, you know, uh, I mean, Panic is in the name. There's yeah. a, a certain um, chaotic nature to that movie. Uh, into Zodiac, it's like he's trying to find what it is that makes the perfect movie. And he's really like examining, like what yes. do I do to create a movie? And then moving on to social network, he's figured it out. Yeah. Like, that's his social network. He has it down. He's like, I, I took my chaotic nature um, and the style that I had. I tried to refine it and I really studied what makes my movies amazing. Yeah. And then I found the perfect screenplay for me and put together a, a perfect movie that hits all of the style points that he likes to hit. Um, but also tells such a succinct, succinct story um, and, and really just kind of brings everything that he uh, possesses together. So that's yeah. just really quick what I want to know. So I loved I thought, you know, just just so you know, I didn't know what the three movies were going to be that Evan was going to choose. And we'll alternate, you know, this week's homework assignment I've I've chosen, um, you know, but he's right. Evan. Evan is the resident Fincher expert. And I think what you did so expertly, um, and I'm sure this was your intention uh, is you chose something from every different era of Fincher. And like you said, it's Fincher's kind of figuring himself out with Fight Club. He kind of bursts onto the scene. He's doing a lot in Fight Club. Zodiac, he's still trying to figure it out. But you can tell as he's going through that movie, he's like, you know what? I'm starting to kind of figure it out. By the time he hits Social Network, he has got his style. And you watch every movie after Social Network that he's done. So it's really only two others afterwards. But those and Social Network all feel very similar. They're of a mood, mm -hmm. visually musically mm -hmm. um the dialogue it's yeah he he's kind of got his thing and and i guess that's a perfect segue yeah into talking about you know fincher's future so moving forward 2020 is his return to movies which is very exciting uh he's going to be making he's already made but there's going to be a netflix release uh of a movie called mank and so this is about 
uh, screenwriter Herman J. Mankiewicz and his battles with director plus star Orson Welles over uh, screenplay credits for the famous movie Citizen Kane. So Citizen Kane is like a lot of people credit it as like the movie that changed Hollywood forever. I think it's most like, you know, top 100 best movies of all times. Number one, just because it did it did so much to move technology and um, and, you know, kind of movie narratives forward. Uh, the cool thing about this is it's actually based on a script uh, that Fincher's dad, Jack Fincher, wrote. So it's kind of an all in the family. This is a movie apparently he's been wanting to make. Um, it is a movie about old Hollywood, uh, which always does really well. And it's starring Gary Oldman uh, as Herman J. Mankiewicz. And so, you know, what we know about about Fincher, what we know about what he gets out of his actors, you put an actor like Oldman in there he's bound to crush it. I'm really excited, you know, from the pictures of set and like some of the screen grabs that they posted online, it looks very different uh, to that kind of most recent era of Fincher that we have associated with him. Uh, it looks a little bit, bit more visually kind of like Zodiac. Like it's trying to be a throwback. Um, you mm -hmm. know, the color gradients are a little bit different. So I'm really excited. Uh, lastly, just really quick before we get into our top five, what do you think is Fincher's, like future do you think he's going to continue to do more netflix shows do you think he's going to kind of like you know hey he's going to do a movie here and there just to kind of appease people but he really wants to do more shows or are you thinking that now netflix is taking that foray into movies and movies that are coming out on netflix are kind of more uh considered you know especially after things like the irishman uh that came out last year and was nominated for a ton of awards do you think he's going to still keep maintain that relationship with netflix and try to do more movies or does he want to do shows tell me i don't know I, I don't know either. So I'm just going to speculate and say whatever he chooses to do a story on, he's going to get the money for it. Yeah. And it's just going to be about whether it's something like Mindhunter that he knows he just can't do in a two and a half hour movie. He has to do it spread out over a series. Yeah. Um, but if he finds something like The Social Network or Gone Girl or Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, you know, a great story probably coming from a book that he can do, you know, between two and a half and three hours. I really hope he does that uh, and yeah. just gets, paid, you know, gets $85 million to do a movie with Netflix uh, too. So I, yeah. I, I don't know. Uh, I, I hope we have both coming. Yeah. It's really way. interesting. And you kind of led me into something like I hadn't thought about this prior to the, what, what you just said. Um, thinking about like Mindhunter, you can really see like his two big shows, house of cards and, and Zodiac. Like when I think like, it would be awesome to watch Zodiac. And then just binge watch Mindhunter season one because they're like very they have very similar styles and vibes about them. Just like weirdly enough, even though they're completely different subject matter, like Social Network and House of Cards kind of mesh together. Yeah. Like if you're looking no, for things to wash together that have that like, right. you know, that kind of cohesive like thread. And yeah. Stuff. OK. Perfect. That was David Fincher. Quick synopsis of his career about his style, a couple of his most important movies and what we think. He might foray into the future post Mank 2020. Yeah. So now it's time for my personal favorite segment of every podcast. It's time for our top five David five. Fincher movies. Let's do it. Evan, are you I, excited? I am very excited. I, I it was very hard to to nail down my top five. Yes. I was I'm going to go stuff. first. I want to go first this week. Okay. And we will, you know, we know we're we're definitely going a little bit long on time, so we probably will do a little bit shorter conversation 
um, here for each of these movies. And there's probably going to be some crossover. So just hey, to kind of get it's too there, long, listen to it in two parts, people. Right, listen to it in two parts. But, this could be um, 90 minutes, 245 so minutes, the way this, back and the way there from your commute if you're still commuting. Right. Um, which hopefully not too many people are. But, you know, listen to it at home, listen to it in the car, wherever. Um, so if one of us has the same movie, um, it, so say at number five, uh, well, I'm not going to use adventure movies, but say we have the same movie at number five, um, whoever lists it first, or I have it at number four, you have it at number five. If you list it at five, we'll just save the conversation. Yeah. You just months. have to, you just have to be like, Hey, it's higher up on my list. Um, and then we'll talk about it then. Perfect. All right. That being said, are we ready? Yes, please. My number five, 1995, seven, Morgan yes. Freeman, Brad Pitt, Kevin Spacey, Gwyneth Paltrow. Uh, Morgan Freeman is, you know, playing a retiring police detective and tackling a final case. Um, you know, when there's like a new transfer played by Brad Pitt and they discover all these really grisly murders. Right. Um, and there's a serial killer who's played by Kevin Spacey, uh, who's targeting people that he thinks represent each one of the seven deadly sins. Um, and Gwyneth Paltrow plays Pitt's wife. It is such a good movie. It's like one of my favorite I guess it's, you know, it's a buddy cop movie. Um, it is. That's yeah, it's saying. such a good buddy cop movie. Uh, and I don't want to go too deep into it because we're not going to. Uh, but what's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? <laughs> Incredible yeah. movie. I mean, I wish the internet had been what it is now because the memes that could have come out of 1995, and it has made a resurgence as a meme. Yes. But it is literally made to be a meme. Yeah. it's And it's really, a, like we talked about, it's a creepy, spacey performance. Yes. It's one of those where, hey, it's really perverse, um, smart, smart, intelligent mm -hmm. serial killer uh, taking advantage of, you know, kind of a Freeman is the sharper of the two police officers. But Pitt, you know, is in an interesting area right. in his career and Freeman's kind of on the way out trying to retire. Very good. Highly recommend watching it. Um, but he's so clever, right? Like yeah. this is kind of what we're talking about. Like they kind of lead you to believe that unless Spacey's character is going to give himself up, he's not going to get caught. Like he is yeah. that clever. He's one of those guys. Yeah, he's one of those killers where like they know, they both know that they know. But it's like until you can have evidence, then, right? Then we'll talk. Right. So and um, this and is your number five as well. Is that what you said? My number five as well. Interesting. Yes. I think based on our conversations earlier, we didn't tell each other our top fives, but I think our top fives might go in a very similar direction. Probably. So it could be. Um, one thing I wanted to note about this movie is we're talking a lot about perverse movies, and it's funny that this is his first because to me, this was the movie that scared me the most. I mean, mm. just the grisly nature of some of the murders. Um, the idea I remember I watched this movie when I was pretty young. My dad loves this movie, and I'm really glad he showed it to me. Um, but the idea of Kevin Spacey's character cutting off his fingertips every few weeks to make sure that he wouldn't leave fingerprints. I, that haunted me in my dreams yeah. for a long time to think of somebody going to that <laughs> length just to oh. be able to get more murder. Ooh, horrifying. Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, that is both of our number fives is okay, seven. Five. So then we'll go to you. Okay. Give me your number four. Number four is a movie that we just covered. Uh, it's called Zodiac. Wow. Okay. Yes. Zodiac okay. is my number four. Um, a couple things that we didn't know before that I just wanted to mention. Um, 
some of the scene i mean you did mention the the shots of san francisco i just wanted to to bring up one because it probably costs 10 million dollars to make and it's such a david fincher flex when he recreates the construction of the transamerica building it he says it's to show the passing of time but you could literally show a tree living and dying or something to show a few years going by this man reconstructed the Transamerica building on screen. That is a noted, uh, like when you talk about this movie being a flop, I don't know exactly the figure, but it was some like ridiculous in like the neighborhood of like 15 or 20 million just for that one shot where it was like, you know, if you just didn't do that, it wouldn't have been as much of a flop. Like it still wouldn't have been good, but like you wouldn't have lost $30 million. I love David Fincher so much. I I love the idea of him making a two hour and 45 minute movie in which, you know, there's very fleeting moments of action. And then just being like, you know what? Just going back a ways, we're going to have to spend $15 million to recreate a building digitally. And yes. then just be like, all right, let's run it. <laughs> yes. Okay. Powerful uh, fella. Good. I'm not going to spoil anything, okay. but Zodiac might be on my list. Okay. Um, but it's okay. We already talked about it, so it doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, yeah. My number four, 2011, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Okay, Daniel so Craig, I Rooney Mara. Okay. Uh, let me just, you want me to just we'll talk about yeah it. Go okay ahead, go ahead and list off the stats uh daniel craig rooney mara christopher Plummer, robin wright stellan skarsgård uh music by uh trent Reznor and agnes ross so yes. we'll talk we'll talk about girl with the dragon tattoo yeah uh when it comes time for evan evan give uh, me your number three my number three is gone girl this is also my number three okay perfect Thanks. i'm well then we can share this one yes. but it, it came out in 2014 it stars ben affleck rosamund pike Neil Patrick Harris and Tyler Perry yeah. uh, in a hilarious turn. And Emily um, Ratajkowski. And Emily, yes, we cannot she's forget. Not a, I mean, she's not really a star, but she's a star. She's a star. Yes. <laughs> um, oh, boy. Um, <laughs> it is based on a, on a book by Jillian Flynn. Uh, yep. She also wrote the screenplay, which I think is very cool and I think is part of what makes this movie so great. Yeah one thing on Jillian Flynn, you do not get to go away from her without telling everybody that she's also the author of the story that Big Little Lies, the HBO show yeah, is based off of. True. So I love that show. If you haven't seen Gone Girl and you like that show, you'll really, yep. it'll fit the style. It's, it's, you'll understand. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Jillian Flynn, phenomenal uh, author. Mm-hmm. So this movie got nominated for only one Oscar for Rosamund Pike for Best Actress, which is just hard for me to fathom how it only had one Oscar nomination, but it did. Um, It also made $369 million. It's his highest grossing film so far. Um, So very successful for David. Um, And it's basically a mystery surrounding a missing woman Uh and her husband being the prime suspect and and going back to that theme of, of putting together a puzzle. Um, the, there's a major puzzle surrounding the mystery and in the middle of the movie, I won't spoil it too much, but I will say there is one of my favorite twists of all time at maybe like the hour, 10 minute mark or so. Um, it's a completely different movie after that. It is. It is. Oh, it's so good. The, the twist is amazing. Um, a couple of things that he does that are awesome in the storytelling devices that he uses are, he does great flashback storytelling in this movie, and it's something that can that can really not work. In it can the go hands. wrong very easily. Yes. Um, when you're trying to do flashbacks, it can be lazy, being like, this is why people are this way. This happened to them when they were younger. But the way they show them falling in love and first meeting and the way the cool girl speech, which if you know the movie, the cool girl speech comes right after um, that big twist that we were talking about. 
the way they're doing the flashback and showing how the pieces fall into place is just masterful masterful work and i applaud david fincher yeah this is an amazing movie um obviously music by ross and resner uh Mm -hmm. plays a huge part in this uh i don't know if there's too much to say other than i do think it's a crime that was only nominated for uh just for rosamund pike her performance is incredible but i think i think affleck is really just he carries this movie for a while and and does it so well I think he does. He, he kind of gets underplayed because it again, it's it's similar. Um, I think one of the thing, another theme of Fincher's movies is there's always somebody that's kind of giving a more uh, nuanced and subtle performance on the outside uh, of maybe you know uh, one of the main performances. But Ben Affleck really, really, really crushes this this role yeah. um, and kind of brings him. You know, I'm not back. He's Ben Affleck's never not been back. But this like put him back in public favor. Right, right. It, it put him back in public favor. Um, and, you know, it, it led into him taking on Batman, which is probably not the right choice. But, you know, you got to be at the top of your game to be taken on Batman in, yes. in any uh, setting. So and one thing that I wanted to mention, a, a, a genre movie that I absolutely love. Um, most of them are from the 80s, early 90s. They don't come around anymore. Uh, I have it written here. Erotic thriller with two exclamation points. Yeah, I, I love erotic thriller. I love you know, I don't I'm not saying um, sex should be associated with violence, uh, but in entertainment, there's something very horrifying and unnerving uh, about violence and and, you know, death and and um, and horror coming out of the bedroom. And I think this movie, mm. I, like I said, I won't spoil it, but yeah. the scene that I'm referring to yeah. with Rosen Pike um, and Neil Patrick Harris uh, is shocking and it, it definitely brings callbacks to movies like basic instinct and which i love and it's not the first uh, time that he's done something like that uh you know we'll talk it's not girl with the dragon tattoo very. right anyway that is, yeah that goes even even farther um and and definitely doesn't have like the sexiness that i mean it definitely doesn't it's it's on the other side of the spectrum for sure um, so we'll talk about that a little bit more. But I just wanted to note that the erotic thriller is just a movie that does not come around very often mm-hmm. anymore. Um, and David Fincher took a whack at it. So I appreciate that. Yes. OK, so we're down to both of our top twos because yeah. we've, we've had the same top five and top three. Right. My number two, I'm like almost going to guarantee it's your number one. Um, so my number two is the social network. That's my number one. OK, that's what I thought. So your number two yeah. is girl with dragon tattoo. Let's talk about. Number two, let's talk about Girl with the Dragon Tattoo right now. Yeah, yeah perfect. So, um, you know, this movie is from 2011. It's based on a book by Stieg Larsson. Yeah. Um, it stars Daniel Craig, Rooney Mara, Stellan Skarsgård, Robin Wright, and Christopher Plummer. Yep. Uh, and it's about a writer and researcher investing, uh, investigating a 40-year-old disappearance uh, by a girl from a wealthy family, along with um, Rooney Mara, who is his researcher and assistant. Um, and they're really just trying to solve this mystery. And, and I'd love to hear what you really like about this movie. Yeah. So first of all, Daniel Craig going to solve a family mystery sounds a lot like another movie that came out last year called Knives Out, where Christopher right. Plummer also plays the, <laughs> the patriarch of the family. And yeah. watching this movie again, I was like, oh, my God, <laughs> like there's no way that Ryan Johnson didn't like get the idea for this. Adventure fan. But. What I love about this movie, um, there's so many things. 
I, I'm a huge Daniel Craig fan. I've said I'm a huge Bond fan. I think he's done wonderful things with the Bond franchise. I'm a huge Robin Wright fan. I think this is kind of Fincher. This is his first movie post-Social Network after kind of figuring out his style. And this is just him firing on all cylinders. Just yeah. he's he is it's got a great twist. Uh the uh like the way that he like holds suspense when like not a ton happens in like the beginning, middle parts of the movie. Um, you know, how he introduces uh, you know, this character that's you know, down on his luck, you know, Daniel Craig, uh, plays the reporter who basically he, he gets like a, a lawsuit against him for, uh, libel and loses and loses all his money. Uh, and his magazine is going to start to go under, um, that he runs with Robin Wright's character. Uh, and then he gets hired by this, you know, Henrik Wagner, who is played by Christopher Plummer, who's basically like the Wagners are like a old industrial family. It takes place in Sweden, right. by the way. I feel like that's important to say. So the, the Wagners are like an old industrial family that's got ties to like the entire country. Like Christopher Plummer's character says in the beginning, he goes, uh, you know, we aren't a part of this country's history. We built this country. You know, they, he's like, we laid the railroads down for you to even get to like my house where he lives in like very north part of, of uh, Sweden. Uh, so it's really interesting. It's a phenomenal story on both accounts it kind of does a couple things it's a really good just like classic murder mystery um i love the angle of like hey we're it re- we're you know we're looking at something that was old but then we realize oh my god you know it kind of takes the twist that it's connected to a lot more you know than just what we thought uh i also love it's it's really rooney mara's character uh her name is elizabeth San- uh salander who she is the girl with the dragon tattoo it's kind of the i guess the whiz kid right she's the seek the cheat code that can um, you know, is an unbelievable researcher throughout the movie, but, you know, she's kind of going through really hard time as well. She's, uh, you know, she's a ward of the state, which basically means that, you know, she's being paid for by the state, which is something that's normally reserved uh, for like children, but then she's abused, um, you know, by her, her caretakers. And there's like a lot going on Definitely in this movie make a note here of anyone who's going to watch this movie. Um, and it's one issue that I have with it because I'm not exactly sure how necessary it is. Um, but, know, you know, yeah. if just just know that there are a couple of pretty brutal um, full on rape scenes in this movie. So make a note of that. And and if, you know, yeah. just as like a trigger warning, I, I can understand why it would be very hard for some people to watch. Um, just kind of make a note and, and maybe look up what times those come on. And if you want to watch it and skip through those. Uh, I would not blame you at all. Yeah, and I, I'd be interested to know exactly what Fincher was thinking when he he put those. I think he's saying true to the book is what he's doing. Um, but they definitely are. I, they're incredibly hard to watch. You don't have to go into it a ton more. Um, but just yeah. wanted to kind of give people that warning no. because it is they are hard. It is hard to watch. I agree with you. Um, it's a highly disturbing movie. Uh, on a lot of accounts, I think one thing that we would be remiss to not touch upon is Stellan Skarsgård gives one of the best villain performances that like never gets talked about. Uh, and I guess that is kind of spoiling things, but he's so, so, he's so, so scary. Oh, talk my. about one specific scene uh, with Stellan Skarsgård. And, and it kind of goes back to that, like David Fincher really seeing himself in his villains. Yeah. He has, we're really spoiling. So if, if you want to watch this movie without any spoilers, just skip ahead, like 50 seconds. Um, I'll give you a second here, but he has Daniel Craig tied up in his basement and it's a murder basement. People. Yeah. He's literally only just to murder people. He has a full basement. He's the person they've been looking for. And it gets revealed 
that he he's a member of the family first of all it gets revealed that he literally just has a basement to murder young women and right. even says that the previous time that daniel craig was there in his home he had a young woman locked in a cage right. in the basement while they were all talking um and in this specific scene when he has daniel craig tied up first of all he starts playing onoko flow or sail away um <laughs> And it is hilariously evil. Uh, it's definitely a callback to Reservoir Dogs and Quentin Tarantino um, in that uh, torture scene. But when he goes up to Daniel Craig, he, he's basically practicing how he's going to stab him in the stomach. And he's prodding his chest as if it's like, like a golfer lining up a shot. It, it's so... It's, it's like... <laughs> I'd, it's hard to even understand in the moment because you're so horrified thinking that Daniel Craig might actually die. Um, but he's really like picking his spot. It, it's oh. just it's precise. It's almost reminds me of like what Fincher must be like when he's picking out a shot to use in a scene. Yeah. Um, but it's definitely something I wanted to make a note of because it's definitely a Fincherism. Yeah. It's an incredible, incredible movie. Uh, highly recommend watching. Like Evan said, uh, great warning on mm -hmm. those, uh, you know, few there's two real two rape scenes. One yeah. is really more intense than the other. Yeah. Um, yeah. If you don't want to look at that, which I don't blame you, uh, feel free to skip ahead. Um, all right. Now to my number two and Evan's number one. And I actually, I want to tell everyone what my number one is, but first, before we yeah. talk about this, my number one Zodiac. Um, okay. Yeah. I Perfect. love this movie. It means like the world to me. Like I said, it is one of like my favorite movies to revisit. I've done it a ton. We've talked enough about Zodiac at length. Um, I find it interesting that both of us don't have Fight Club on our list. Maybe that's something for another time. But I oh. think the reason that it, my theory for why that is, and that's what I thought uh, was going to happen with both of us, is that it didn't really resonate with us because it didn't. We weren't old enough to get it when it first came out, and then like watching it after the fact, it doesn't like hit as hard. It's not as because it's a very of the moment movie as well. Right. Um, but anyway, so Zodiac's my number one. Now talk about my number two, Evan's number one, The Social Network, uh, which is really oh, it's Evan. Perfect. Yeah, it's perfect. It's so I, good. When we did top five last week, um, and then I immediately turned around and watched The Social Network, I was kicking myself. I was like, how the hell did I not put this in my top five? This movie is so good. It is so well crafted. It's well written. It's perfectly acted uh, i i could talk about social network forever and i think we're definitely gonna have to do a full pot on it but just to kind of um jump into it uh just for the sake of our conversation right now it's my number one it's your number two correct mm -hmm. um it's from 2010 it's it's a screenplay by aaron sorkin uh who is known for very snappy dialogue anyone who is fans of the movie um or the tv show the west wing would be very familiar uh with his style uh, it stars Jesse Eisenberg, Andrew Garfield, Justin Timberlake, Army Hammer, Rooney Mara, um, amongst many others. And uh, the, I think the first thing before we jump into anything else, uh, we got to talk about the music because you haven't even if you haven't seen this movie or if you don't know what this movie is, one, I feel sorry for you. But I think the most important thing to note is this is a movie about the founding right. of Facebook. Yes. Um, and it's really a movie about Zuckerberg. Right. And the kind of person he is. I want to go back to the music, but I wanted to make sure that that was like clear, because I think a lot of time we'll take that for granted. Like there are probably people that don't know what this movie is and we need to you know, make it clear 
how incredible it is given that that's the subject matter. <laughs> right. No, that's, that's so true. Uh, it's, and I should have mentioned that, but it's incredibly topical both for the time that it came out and especially now. Um, but kind of jumping back into the music, it, it just sets the tone for the movie. It's, there's a lot of like synth pop mixed with classical piano, which sounds very strange, but when you hear it, it makes so much sense. It just, it's a constant tempo that keeps you going with the movie along with the dialogue. It, they just run in tandem so well. Um, and, uh, you know, it hits so well right after the opening scene between Rooney Mara and Jesse Eisenberg that we talked about earlier. Um, when the music comes in with the title and he's running through the fake Harvard campus. And then also one specific scene that I really wanted to talk about um, is when Eduardo Saverin, who's played by Andrew Garfield and is supposedly Mark Zuckerberg's, you know, um, main partner in Facebook, finds out that he's been um, conned or screwed out of the oh, company. Yes. Yes. He confronts Mark in the office. This is the best scene of the last 10 years. So if you look from 2010 to 2019, it's yeah. the best scene of the 2010s. Bar none. It's my favorite scene. <laughs> it's it could be. It's, it's probably one of my top five favorite scenes of all time. Yeah, it's the scene that we I, I came in with jokingly. Um, you know, it's basically he finds out that he's getting fucked out of out of Facebook, and then he storms across their new shiny Facebook offices um, in Palo Alto, and proceeds to just rip Zuckerberg a new one. Uh, and what's Justin Timberlake's uh, character's name? He's the founder of Napster. I remember um, Sean Parker. Sean Parker, founder of Napster, yeah. kind of like weasels his way in uh, to being Zuckerberg's new right hand man and. Uh, you know, takes him out to to the West Coast, and you know everything's nice and shiny, and and the dialogue. And I don't have anything in front of me. I'm just gonna remember this right off the top of my head. When he goes, it's gonna be like I'm not a founder of Facebook, or he goes, yeah, it's gonna be like I'm not a part of Facebook. And Sean Parker goes, it's not gonna be like you're not a part of Facebook. You're not gonna be a part of Facebook. Yeah. And then says, do you think we'd let you run around in your ridiculous suits? And Garfield delivers the line of the century. Sorry, my Prada's at the cleaners, along with my hoodie and my fuck you flip-flops, you pretentious douchebag. I, Aaron Sorkin, you have my heart. That yep. line makes me laugh so hard in the middle of like an incredibly intense scene. And I, that's what I think is great about this movie is like you laugh out loud a lot in this movie, even though it also is just the portrait of a horrible, horrible human being. And obviously now having more knowledge about Mark Zuckerberg and the type of person he is and the type of company that he's run... Uh, given everything that happened with uh, a lot of the uh, Facebook leaks and everything, right. uh, the, it, it hits even harder now. Even harder. Yeah. It, it, and it's really like, I used to think this was kind of like a, okay, this is about, you know, like this guy's ruthless, but he's smart and he's the hero of the story. But it, when you go back and watch it, what's very clear to me is that Fincher is portraying Zuckerberg as he is the villain. Right. But you're with him the whole time. And I think that's fascinating. And I, I had that note as well. Um, and I think that really speaks to how great Jesse Eisenberg is in this role. Uh, mm -hmm. That he can be the most despicable guy in the room. But you, there's also a certain level of sympathy that you have for him. And, and you're really, it, it's not even that you're rooting for him. You're just like, gosh, it's hard to really make a determination one way or the other of how I want to feel yeah. about this guy. And I think it really speaks to how well jesse eisenberg did and how much he uh really came to embody the character 
Yeah, I, I completely agree. Uh, this movie has you going like flip-flopping back, back and forth on like whether, whose side you're on. Yeah. And I think it's a lot easier now, like I said, given the new information in the last couple of years, you know, knowing the kind of guy Zuckerberg is to like make those determinations. But yeah, I remember but watching there aren't really any good guys. I mean, the Winkle. No, no, no. That's the best part about it. Guys. Uh, Eduardo Saverin, I guess, is the closest you can get to a good guy in the movie. Um, but he's not. I mean, it, he's not a good guy. He's just he's, he's all right. And the movie definitely depicts him in probably a lot better light than than real life would uh, yeah. from everything that we know about Eduardo um, since, you know, the founding of Facebook. But yeah, it's a movie that works so perfectly without any like real, you know, uh, protagonist, which is um, very impressive. Yeah. And we're going to do a movie in the next couple of weeks about our, you know, the top five movies of the 2010s. Um, but probably a qu quick spoiler for that. You and I are both probably in agreement that this is the most important, best movie of the 2010s, correct? This would be my, um, this would be number, my number one in the yeah, 2010s. I agree. Yeah. Uh, and I don't want to, you know, there's a lot, we'll probably do a whole pod on this movie. And so I don't want to like step on the toes of that. The music is also the best score probably of the last yeah. like 10 years as well. Yeah. It's iconic and it's not easy to create an iconic score. Mm -hmm. Like you just think about music, like everything's been done. Right. Um, and what Reznor is able to do and create this drama and this, this sense of like, let it's almost like it feels like the music feels like it belongs in a movie like uh, Gone Girl or like Girl with the Dragon Tattoo or Zodiac where it's like murder is the thing <laughs> that you're worried about. It just makes the stakes of like these two college kids fighting over their new internet company feel so much higher. Um, it's a perfect movie. It's right. a perfect it's movie. Perfect. Yeah, it and I think I think a lot of that has to do with the screenplay. Um, Sorkin screenplay, Fincher, the combo of those two working together, the cast. Yeah. Um, quick hits on every point. Final question on this movie. Yeah. Do we like Justin Timberlake? This is obviously our Justin Timberlake's trying to be a movie star moment. Yeah. Do we do we like him in this movie? I I do, and I've come around on him a lot on this movie. The first couple of times I watched it, it really kind of took me out of the movie in a couple of scenes when he's really just he's going for it. Justin Timberlake is going for it really hard. And you know, one scene that is not my favorite, um, and I know I called it a perfect movie, but it's the only blemish that I can find. The scene in the club, uh, I'm really. I don't love Justin Timberlake in that scene still to this day, but overall I think he does a really good job actually. And I appreciate it because I think that character, I don't know what Sean Parker is supposed to be like in real life, but as far as the movie goes, he's supposed to be the ultimate ham. And I think Justin Timberlake yeah. does a good job with that. So yeah. I, and I appreciate him being in this. Yeah. And I think you're supposed to view him as like a huge douche, right? Yeah, That's like right. kind of inserting himself into this situation. Right. And I think Timberlake, unfortunately, uh, does that perfectly yeah. so like i don't really like justin timberlake as an actor but weird weirdly enough i think it's the perfect casting for this it's movie movie yeah yeah um okay that's our top five mm -hmm. let's run them run down really quick my yep. top five is number five seven number four the girl with the dragon tattoo number three gone girl number two the social network and number one zodiac evan right. getting with your top five i had seven at five uh, Zodiac at four, Gone Girl at three, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo at two, and Social Network at one. 
There it is. There you have it, folks. Those are our top five favorite David Fincher movies. Now it's time for everybody's favorite slash least favorite part of the podcast. It's time for Hot Take Corner. Let's cue the fire. Okay, welcome into Hot Take Corner, where Uh we say things that you're probably not going to like and we're not always going to agree with. Last week, we both gave a hot take just to kind of introduce the uh, segment. This week and moving forward in subsequent weeks, we are only going to have one of us give a hot take and the Mm -hmm. other person is going to have to sit there. And be like, why did I make a podcast yeah. with a person that this yeah. that is this stupid? So yep. this week I volunteered to put myself on the hot seat because I have a Fincher take. I do. And I love the guy. Uh, but I have a very strong Fincher take. Okay. I'm kind of nervous to like speak this into existence. I'm ready. <laughs> I'm ready. Okay. I think that David Fincher has had one of the largest negative impacts on movies in the last 10 years. <laughs> okay. You guys can't see Evan's face. But he's definitely not with me. Let me explain. So Fincher making the move to Netflix and making TV shows has driven more directors to TV and has played a large part in more great ideas becoming TV shows that, in my opinion, are too bloated rather than Mm -hmm. movies that would be perfectly executed in in an hour and a half to two and a half hour format. Do you understand where I'm going with this? David Fincher is one of the most important directors in Mm -hmm. Hollywood. He has done a lot. His becoming... um, you know, disillusioned with the movie making process and large studios in Hollywood mm-hmm. and going to Netflix as a safe haven has driven more directors that should be making movies, should be pumping out great movies for us to make TV. And that's a shame because while I think House of Cards is great and Mindhunter is great and all the things that have come from Netflix in the past are great, I love movies way more than I like TV. Mm-hmm. And the fact that Netflix has taken you know, really five years of David Fincher with no movies is a damn shame. And I stand firm by that take. Do I go now? Yes, you go. Okay. Um, first of all, I understand. I understand what you're saying. And I agree that I personally wish David Fincher, I, I like the TV shows that he's making. I personally wish he would be making movies instead. Um, one thing that I will note And I don't know if this would negate that point. I don't think it necessarily would. But and I'm sure David Fincher could get the money for it. But the types of movies that he makes cost between 45 and 70 million dollars. Lots of times adapting a book, but usually um, a story that hasn't been told on screen before. Mm -hmm. And I'm just not exactly sure studios even make those movies as much anymore. It's it's either a Marvel movie or. Um, just a massive Small like Mad Max style um, action set piece movie or it's like an A24 movie uh, such as a, a Moonlight or uh, Ex Machina or Uncut Gems um, that are you know in like the $25 million and under range so you know I, I don't exactly know what the um, cause and effect of all that is but do you think that could have something to do with it yeah definitely and i think that's also maybe a little bit of a chicken and egg uh right. situation where it's like hey did we stop making these movies because right. these guys left um or did these guys leave because they stopped making those kind of movies mm-hmm. uh man i 
I don't you know. know. Saying, though. I, I understand where you're coming from, and and I think you're right. It, David Fincher and his I exodus think, is important. It, it's caused right. people like I'm trying to think of what's a perfect example of like a show that should be a movie. I mean, I think House of Cards season one should just have been a movie and it, it would have been incredible. But and, Great movie, yeah. Um, I think I agree with you. Mindhunter is not a story that can have been told, um, right? Not yeah. as effective. And you know what's funny is like I don't even mind. Like I'm even in the camp of where I was like, dude, they should just make a girl with the dragon tattoo Netflix series with David mm-hmm. Fincher, where it's just Craig and Rooney Mara's character like solving different, you know, different old yeah. cases. Like I would love that. That would be really cool. I'd definitely watch that. But I don't know. It's just I think it's just the movie lover in me that's upset that we don't have enough David Fincher movies. And I'm really, the only reason I'm, I'm even going to give this take is because I wouldn't like have the heart to give this take. If like there wasn't a Fincher movie on the horizon, but Mank is coming people like be joyous, be glad. Yeah. Um, do you have anything to say in response to my hot take? Any, no, any last, any last I, words? I, I think the only response that I'd have is, I don't know if we've seen the effects of that yet. I think coming over the next oh. five years is when we really, because over the next five or 10 years, those are going to be the directors who grew up, who are around our age, who grew up watching seven and fight club and Zodiac and gone girl. So they're really going to be influenced by David Fincher, just like David Fincher was influenced by Scorsese and Hitchcock and those guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I, you know, I, I'm a little worried about uh, the future moving forward with, with guys deciding that getting big money to do and, and, and you know, guys and gals deciding getting big money to do um, 10 episode series that they can control on Netflix or Hulu or Apple is the way to go. So, uh, you know, I, I'm definitely not going to disagree with your take. I, I I don't know if I'd say the worst uh, thing to happen to movies over the last 10 years, but I... I definitely understand the sentiment and and can't argue with it. I want to make movies. I want the good directors and and we want movies, people. We want movies. That's why we're making this podcast. That was Hot Take Corner. Thank you so much, Evan, for not completely obliterating me. I'm I'm hot and I'm putting you in the hot seat next week. I'm not going to do this again. Yeah, I was nervous. Like I lost sleep the last few days because I was like, oh my god, is Evan going to want to stop doing this podcast? He's going to like completely not talk to me after I say that Fincher is like horrible for the movie industry. I think the Jaws take was worse. (laughs) You know, I've actually gotten a surprising amount of support. Oh, come on. The Jaws take people being like, dude, I get it. it. I don't know Jaws either. And Oh oh my gosh, stop it. I've had multiple people. Well, uh, okay. I'm not going to say I've had two people say, don't tell Jed this, but I have Jaws in my top five. So I was like, and I respect people have Jaws in their top five. There's a lot of people yeah it's hot take corner yeah hey, hey I'm, with it. I'm with it i'm I'm glad that you're sticking by your guns i was just saying as far as ones that that i'm gonna disagree with uh this week's uh, i'm I, I think it's a hot take but i'm i'm definitely uh at least 85 percent on board all right love it awesome thank you guys so much for listening if you yep. stuck around with us for the last 90 minutes uh yep and I hope you have been reinvigorated for Fincher. I hope you watched yeah. those movies with us this week, got a little bit out of our discussion. We want to hear your thoughts on those movies as well as, uh, you know, any other movies that you, you happen to be watching right now. Um, please don't forget to like, uh, review us, subscribe, tell your friends, keep listening. Uh, we are overwhelmed with how great things went in week one, and we want to continue to grow, continue to have more people uh, mm-hmm. listening to the pod and, and grow our, our little group. 
Um, right. You know, when we have a sizable audience, we'll figure out what to call them. The screamers, the flickers, <laughs> who knows? We need, but, we need to, uh, we need to get a few more uh, screamers out there before, before we start giving out names. Yes, exactly. Um, but anyway, so don't forget also to follow us on social media uh, and join the conversation. That's the easiest way to get in touch with us. Shoot us a DM, uh, shoot us a tweet. There's already a little bit of conversation going on uh, out there. Thank you so much to everybody that's been engaging. Uh, Evan, where can the people follow us on social? It's social media, Twitter, it's at Flick and Scream. Instagram, it's Flicking and Screaming. And then uh, shoot us an email, flickingandscreaming at gmail.com. So a lot of variations of the same thing, um, but definitely reach out any way that you can. We'll try to get back to you, and we'd love to engage in the conversation outside of just when, when we're talking into the mics. Yep. And you can find both of our personal uh, social medias in the profiles of mm-hmm. the shows. Uh, feel free to give us a follow. We're always talking movies uh, are. out on the social media. Yep. So next week, uh, we're actually doing two episodes, kind of. Uh, the second episode actually won't be till the following week, but we're going to start doing this every once in a while. We want to cover an individual movie. We're going to do some shorter format uh, episodes, around 35, 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, it won't take too much of your time up. Um, but allow you guys to, you know, have a conversation. Then maybe uh, we can have a more in depth about a movie we talked about. So next week we are going to do war movies. Uh, war movies are extremely important when it right. comes to the history of Hollywood uh, and just cinema in general. Uh, and then we'll talk about a subsequent war movie uh, in the following episode midweek. The three movies. Uh, that are very important for you to watch for next week to understand the context of war movies. I've tried to spread them out across three different eras. Um, We're going to talk a lot. It's probably going to be a long podcast, hopefully not as long as this week, but (laughs) most likely. Uh, Please watch Casablanca, Apocalypse Now, and The Hurt Locker. So that's Casablanca, Apocalypse Now, and The Hurt Locker. Um, I know a lot of those are available on streaming services right now. Uh, If you can't find them on streaming services, uh, rent them. You won't be sorry. Those are three excellent, excellent movies and are going to give you great context for next week's mm-hmm. conversation uh, on the history and war movies. Uh, that's it for me. Any, any, final, any final words, Evan? The only final thought that I have is that David Fincher makes a lot of freaking awesome movies. Oh, so I, am, yes. I couldn't have been more excited to talk about him today. And I hope everybody goes, watches some David Fincher movies and lets us know what they think. Yeah, please hit us up. Like we said, social media, like, Subscribe, rate, tell your friends. Until next week, flickers or screamers, whatever you guys want to be called. We got Travis Riggs be taking us out. Thank you guys so much. Hey, everybody.